In the not-too-distant future, New York has been walled off, isolating the once great city and turning it into an open-air prison camp. The United States, still a military and technological force, is struggling, however, economically and socially, not to mention politically, as its superpower status is challenged by China and Russia. Released in 1981, the plot to John Carpenter's Escape from New York could very well be set today in any of America's newly burned-out cities after months of BLM and Antifa rioting, who sing similar themes as the hijackers in the movie who kidnapped the president. With the 2020 election being still disputed, the country itself appears in need of a snake character to either rescue itself from a hijacking of a different sort or to wake it up to the cold reality that things really are that bad, defying all attempts at logic or reason. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. Military industrial under. A new world order. We are here to destroy the control of the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine billion. Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Lander. Tonight I am joined by uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Call me Adam. Call you Adam, right? I only call your dad Mr. Adam Smith. And uh, that, that was a I reference think... that may have gone over the heads of the audience, but it's uh, definitely a prelude to the movie we're about to talk about. Uh, and uh, well, Mr. Nick Mason will be joining us. Sometime this century, we don't know when, but we will... Uh, yeah, maybe next episode, hopefully. maybe this one, we don't know yet. We are not sure. We don't even know where Nick is currently. Um, he might be calling us from uh, rural Kyrgyzstan uh, later tonight. So On the sat phone. Uh, until then, until then, you will only hear from the two of us, and uh, we thought we would take a break from... Uh, insane politics and conspiracy theories tonight and we would talk about uh, something a little bit funner more relaxed uh the films of uh, one mr john carpenter man who uh defined much of american film for decades now is like a living legend and uh, one film in particular i guess we wanted to start with which is uh <laughs> becoming more prescient by the day uh, escape from new york Starring uh, Kirk Russell in his prime. So, Adam, you, uh, what did you think of Escape from New York? I just watched it. It was good. Um, first thing I want to say was I was uh, I was surprised to see Lee Van Cleef in the credits uh, in the opening part of the movie. Uh, I was a big um, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly fan growing up, and he always played one of the more um, charismatic villains that I've seen portrayed in sort of Western style movies. He wasn't like 
and, and that that whole genre, the spaghetti western, was a much more cynical take on how the world works as opposed to the the black and the white hat. Uh, he played a very very good sort of grayish black hat, uh, and I think in this movie he does somewhat a little bit of that. I'm sure that was part of why he was cast in it. I think he wasn't really the villain, um, but he um, he he's the I guess the police chief. What I don't really know how the political system in that universe actually works. I mean, it, it's sort of up for interpretation. It, it's a big anarcho-tyrannical system where New York has been taken over, like like the Chaz Zone in Seattle, by the Duke. And then there's this kind of ostensible American country outside of it that still functions to a degree, but. Um, I thought it was very good. Well, uh, well it functions with a, uh, a British president. I don't know if you caught that bit. The the president no. has like a thick English accent or something. Well, <laughs> something like I was that. doing other things as it was playing in the background. Uh, but yeah, I, I, he, he wasn't that important to the... I mean, it no, was, he's no. just the it was, MacGuffin, It was just right? like an so odd... It was, just... it was an odd thing. I think like Carpenter was... Um, he, you know, he a lot of carpenter's films like there's this like weird not weird actually it's a little bit admirable like uh uh the everyman kind of against like the corporate conspiracy or you know the the conspiracy or the everyman in some kind of like shitty situation did, did he do the thing uh, also with yes, kurt russell yeah, the thing, yeah i would say the thing is probably uh his best work we'll talk about that as well yeah um, but a lot of his films have that feel like um the fog has that feel it's a small working class town that gets kind of impacted by this weird supernatural event and there's some kind of conspiracy and mystery going on with the whole thing and uh, it's just normal people trying to survive and um you know like the british accent stuff i, I feel like he was trying to think of a way how do I create this contrast between like all these kind of poor underclass and like the government? Well, I can have the the head of the government literally have a British accent just to kick it up a notch. Um, but no, uh, Escape from New York, uh, which came out in 1981, uh, is uh, I think was originally at the time when it came out. If you look into this, it was regarded as like very anachronistic, offensive, all these words are used to describe it, uh, unrealistic and so forth. Um, but any honest analysis of New York City yeah. in the late 1970s, which is you know kind of like the backdrop to this film, would make it very clear uh, that was the reality. <laughs> it, it was. And, and they said the, same, City, yeah. said the same stuff about Dirty Harry being said in San Francisco, mind you, but it was still a relatively urban setting that was dealing with similar issues of uh, rampant crime. Um, and also the opening scene of the movie where the hijacking takes place of the Air Force One with the president has to eject into New York, Manhattan in particular, uh, the... The, the the terrorist or the activist, whatever you want to call her, um, who took over the plane gave this right out of the SJW handbook um, talking points. It was about, you know, this fascist, imperialist, racist country. Uh, you know, we, we, we demand 
rights for workers, which I'm not against, of course, but you know, not for those previously stated reasons. Um, and the, uh, the, the language of the day, and again, this is 81. So they filmed it in 80 and Reagan had, I guess just barely won. I mean, when they were actually filming it, he was probably not even inaugurated yet, but, um, or he wasn't inaugurated, but he wasn't even elected yet when they started this and the writing of it, of course. Uh, so the seventies really in New York city were abysmal. They literally had a period when the power went out for, I don't remember how long, but it was, it was a good stretch. And you know, you, you live in Manhattan, you depend on the grid, the transportation grid, the communication grid, the electrical grid. There's no, uh, urban homestead in Manhattan, especially in that, that era when crime, and you can look at, um, violent crime statistics. It it was peaking in the seventies. It was, it was horrible. Oh yeah. Like if you, uh, I actually went and looked up the murder rates or the homicide rate. Uh, it was pretty insane. Like, uh, so in, uh, 1960, the estimated homicide rate per capita was 6.19. And then by, by 1979, it was 21.96, basically 22. <laughs> yeah. And then 1980, it jumped up to 25.6. And actually the funny thing is that the estimated population of New York declined like precipitously uh, from 1979 to 1980, like it just collapsed. Hundreds of thousands of people just vanished all of a sudden. And, uh, kind of what we're seeing today, um, hundreds of thousands of people leaving the city, uh, you know, lose, uh, drop their residency status, move to the burbs or move to, uh, Jersey or Connecticut or whatever. And, um, the city just kind of becomes an urban wasteland. Um, there's a lot of great, uh, historical archives of pictures and you can find them relatively easily. And I recommend, uh, sometimes it's interesting just to see history through pictures and there's a lot, lot of great pictures of urban blight in the late seventies in New York. And around this time, uh, basically in 1975, the city effectively went broke and a lot of key public services went down. And this resulted um, in infrastructure collapse. It resulted in firefighters not being able to respond in time. Uh, Public electrical workers couldn't respond in time to certain problems. The plumbing stopped working in certain areas of like the Bronx and uh, Brooklyn. And it was just a complete wasteland. Um, And the funny thing is that some of the scenes that were shot that were not like miniatures or matte paintings or any of that. Um, you definitely get the impression like they didn't even have to dress up the set. Like they just used the natural lighting from the street lights, and they just they have these like very wide angle cameras. I think they filmed it. I don't remember exactly the city, but it was in the Midwest, and it was a city like uh, Cleveland or something like that that had recently just been like uh, burned, burned out. Like the whole thing had just right, been burned. And it, but it looks identical to those pictures like yeah you don't even have to, yeah like my point is they don't have to dress it up like it looks exactly like i think that when you watch it now 40 years it's god it's been 40 years effectively yeah you watch it now you're like oh that's a science fiction reality because new york city is like this super high-tech really bright 
beautiful city mm-hmm. with all these fancy buildings and fancy lights and fancy people. But at the time, it was an extremely ugly place. Uh, the roads were totally shit. Like there were no fancy lights at night. It was just a dismal, dingy, dirty place with lots of weird people running around. And um, the the impression that you kind of get watching the film on top of that is that uh, when, like, uh, Snake Plissken is the film's main character, sort of this, like, um, uh, criminal mercenary type, uh, he, he kind of, like, sits down on this chair in this one scene next to a pile of rubble. Well, you can look through, like, the, the New York Historic Archive from that period and find pictures of New York City that literally look like that. They look like just bricks and stones kind of strewn about next to a house that the firefighters couldn't put out in time. And it's been through two or three winters, and now there's icicles kind of coming off the brick. And it's just falling over on itself. And there's just people kind of like standing around on the street corner next to the broken down building like it's no big deal. Uh, it definitely captures a feel for New York at the time that I think a lot of people wouldn't get anymore. Um, but that's why at the time when it came out, a lot of the criticism of it was that it was too bleak. Uh, it didn't. It was too anachronistic. It, uh, it 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 didn't try to like see the better side of New York. It just focused on how shitty New York is, and that it was totally believable that you could create like a prison colony on New York City and it wouldn't it wouldn't dramatically change the landscape. Yeah, so do we want to talk about what the, the details of the movie uh, get into? Well, yeah, right? like the, so the the details of the movie basically uh, at some point I don't think we're told when or maybe we are, but it's not like it's not a very important detail. Uh, at some point there's like this epidemic of crime in the United States. Um, and again, that made sense to audiences in the late seventies and early eighties. Like there was an epidemic of crime. There was an epidemic of, uh, organized crime, especially in New York city. There was an epidemic of random street crime of just sort of violence. Uh, a lot of, I think a lot of cops in New York refer to this period as the Fort Apache days, like, uh, you know, cops getting killed left and right. And it was sort of just wild. And um, so in this reality, apparently, of the, uh, the escape from New York world, it's 10 times worse. It's 100 times worse. Like, it's total breakdown of society. And the president of the United States basically goes around to at least New York, I think other cities as well, and basically closes them off with the military and then puts hundreds of thousands or millions, we don't, you don't really know, of criminals into the city with residents of the city who couldn't get out, like couldn't afford to leave. And he creates open air prison colonies uh, effectively because there's no other option. The prisons are too full. And uh, the president of the United States, for whatever reason, is uh, flying near the area and his plane goes down and he's effectively trapped and then kidnapped uh, once he's inside the city. And uh, there's a shadowy government agency. Uh, I don't think are they explicitly even named 
Uh, I don't think they're even like given a name. Just this guy shows up. Uh, and, I did uh, notice on the uh, the Huey helicopter that is basically the v- Vietnam era style helicopter uh, in the film. There was a U.S. Uh, PF something like that U.S. Police Force uh, emblem on it or whatever that means I'm guessing, but U.S. Police Force. Yeah, you know that was that's funny because during this recent um, round of rioting and um, baboonery in uh, in the United States, uh, and this isn't this is being recorded in the year 2020 for future uh, bunker listeners. Um, uh, in the American capital in Washington D.C. There were a bunch of these very strange people who were found to be um, guarding specific landmarks or guarding specific strategic sites inside the Capitol. And they had very vague emblems or very vague uniforms on. And it would say like U.S. police or American police force or something like really weird, which of course doesn't exist. And these guys were all private contractors from DynCorp or whatever. And they were basically given a bunch of battle rattle and black masks and stuff to like sit out in front of buildings and beat people up if, uh, if they got too close, I guess. Um, but yeah, so there's this shadowy government agency that pops up and basically says, well, we can't really, it's going to be like a public relations nightmare if it turns out the president was captured inside the prison colony. And so we need to recruit this sort of um, criminal, this infamous criminal, to go in and pull him out. And uh, to that end, they recruit a man named Snake Plissken, which is uh, Kirk Russell in his prime, his, his 1980s prime, with uh, the great set of hair and uh, the toned muscles and all that. And um, uh, they basically send him in to retrieve the president. And there's a funny gag where they attach a bomb to his neck somehow. They're able to inject an explosive device. And the explosive device has a timer. And if he doesn't uh, report back with the president within the 24-hour time period, he uh, the device will explode and immediately uh, blow his head off. And if he attempts to leave the city, uh, the device will uh, automatically explode. So there's like a radius system built in. And uh, the rest of the movie is just it, – it doesn't really – there's not like something like that uh interesting going on it just it's more just showing you like what would life be like if you created an open air prison colony and um there's a nice mix between people who are clearly part of these criminal underworld gangs that have formed and then normal people who are just trying to survive like i think ernest borgnine <laughs> the ancient hollywood actor randomly shows up as the taxi driver to throw a Molotov cocktail at um, a bunch of uh, youths. That was a pretty funny scene. But, yeah, there, um, there were some fairly well-known people. It was not a B-movie. Yeah. No, it was not a B-movie. Although it comes across as one at times. Like, it definitely has, like, a, 
like a B movie feel. Um, uh, well, it's I, it's, I don't a, know how to just... it's John Carpenter. I mean, he's yeah. a horror yeah. guy, and they, I think, rightly are usually kind of in that sort of gray zone of A slash B, depending on how good they are. Um, I think the thing was excellent, and this one was quite good. I think the thing probably uh, broke new territory. It's it's actually more of a classic horror film, uh, uh, in fact. But th- this is more sci-fi, uh, more kind of along the lines of a THX. If you ever seen that with uh, that was um, yeah, definitely, and also Lucas's. has like a Logan's Run feel. But yeah, yeah, very dystopian. Well, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you're thinking of THX one one three eight. I think was the some, George Lucas yeah, student like film. Something like that. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that um, I think John Carpenter went to uh, the university, or he, at least he spent time at, or he took classes at, or uh, I don't know if he actually graduated, but he he spent time at um, uh, USC, which is where George Lucas went, um, University of Southern California Film School. Uh, USC, for those who don't know, is like, the top film school in America. And a lot of the uh, great American filmmakers uh, who have made films that are actually admirable have come out of USC. Um, And certainly if you ever want to try and understand sort of the Hollywood power network and how Hollywood really works and all the, the tubes that feed into it, University of Southern California is one of the bigger tubes. Um, it's film school program is definitely the most influential in the country. It definitely has the most sheer volume of filmmakers and film production technicians and producers and writers and, um, a lot of all the various kinds of people who make the film industry work, um, come out of USC and USC has, um, like the Viterbi school of engineering and has, a lot of cross programs between their engineering disciplines and film. So there's a lot of film engineering. There's a lot of um, computer graphics engineering. There's sound engineering. All of that comes out of USC. They've done huge amounts of R&D into it. Um, So John Carpenter kind of comes from that same group, speaking of George Lucas. And um, uh, definitely... <clears throat> there's a there's a something else going on where Escape from New York is kind of in the same vein as Logan's Run, Blade Runner, um, all of the kind of classic late '70s and '80s um, dystopian sci-fi films. Like there was this trend sometime in the 1970s, um, science fiction became very dystopian. It sort of flipped on its head. And it's not really clear why. Uh, I think that as America became more ingratiated with the space program and became more ingratiated with new technological concepts coming to fruition in everyday life, people, you know, do what they do and they try to see the dark side of it and what can go wrong and how it could be bad and uh, the mistakes we could make and things like that. So there's definitely a sense of throughout the film 
like all of this, there's a lot of interesting technology. Like there's basically a UAV drone or there's like a, like an unmanned drone kind of thing that's flying around. And there's a lot of these, um, advanced helicopters that definitely didn't exist in the eighties, but that kind of resemble some of the helicopters we use now. Um, and there's a lot of like, um, chip tracking like everyone has chips in them and can be tracked everywhere they go well he comes in satellites on, on a glider yeah. so they they sort of yeah, recruit yeah. him and they're they're sort of like uh that almost cliche scene between the old general and the uh, tired grizzled soldier it's like well you know why are you hiring me and it's like well you know somebody told me you're the best you know kind of thing and, and there's that back and forth it's it's very almost funny uh but uh anyway he agrees and then they they sort of they they inject him with this uh this dead man switch that if he doesn't do what they want he's basically a dead man uh and then uh to top it all off they they throw him into the uh the city with this uh it's not clear to me how it works it's it's obviously some glider of some sort but he then later says it's a jet glider. So it's not really a glider. It's a jet plane then, but it, it floats in. Maybe it has the ability to, to like float, you know, uh, or glide long distances without using its engines for the obvious reason of stealth. Uh, so they go in at night and he's in, a, you know, the, this capsule basically with wings, sort of like the U2 um, spy plane uh, looks very much like that. And it glides in, and th- these have been used uh, since World War II and probably before that. Uh, but that's when they, I think, first started seeing a lot of usage during that conflict for slipping people behind in to go, you know, detonate something that the enemy had uh, uh, in their possession, usually infrastructure or bridge or something like that. But he slips in, and he actually lands on the top of, and this dates it very, uh, very critically, on the top of the World Trade Center, and so. From there, uh, I guess they they think that nobody will see him because it's so high, and then he can descend down this massive tower, which somehow still works, even though the city is completely devoid of any maintenance or infrastructure crews, and so somehow the power still works. But he he hot wires like like two wires together, and then the door like opens up, and he gets in the elevator and he goes down. Uh, but what? what I thought was interesting was that opening or the, the insertion scene and Kojima has admitted this, but metal gear solid was created by Hideo Kojima uh, from Japan, the uh, Konami video game uh, director genius behind the metal gear series. Uh, he has admitted that snake Plissken was an influence on the character uh, solid snake and the insertion scene in Metal Gear Solid is actually very reminiscent of this, where he's actually sent in in a one-man uh, torpedo sub into the uh, the base that he's supposed to infiltrate during the game. Uh, so all these little things that I I never never seen this movie until last night, but all these little things that are sort of canon or references in other works of art is very interesting to me to see that be revealed yeah uh escape from new york and well john carpenter in general but escape from new york and the character of snake plissken has had uh, i mean you said it was cliche but 
I can't even think of how many characters have basically been in various kinds of fiction have just been based off of uh, based off of that kind of archetype. And that sort of that story is kind of cliche and a little goofy as it is. Um, they play it totally straight. Like one of the things you appreciate about John Carpenter's films is that there are parts of it of all of his films. And the thing is like this for sure, where if you tweak it a little bit, you could see how this could easily be satire. Like if you changed one or two lines of dialogue here or there, it could it could be a completely different film because a lot of it's so ridiculous. <laughs> like Escape from New York is a, I'll say, is a ridiculous movie. The whole movie is just is so goofy. You can almost add a laugh, a laugh track to it. But because it's John Carpenter, he plays it totally straight. Like you're supposed to take everything in this very seriously, and that adds an element of it that's um, that's hard to find another filmmaker, and that's why it has such a lasting influence. Like so many characters get based off of that kind of um, laconic, uh, gritty former soldier kind of archetype, you know, criminal mercenary, but you know, good guy at heart kind of archetype. Like, uh, that's basically a staple of fiction now. And I think without that character in that movie, it would not have been nearly as big. It wouldn't have inspired so many people. Um, and if you go, if, you know, if you look at, um, sort of the, towards the end of the film, it basically, uh, as the film sort of wraps up, there's a line where, uh, you know, he's like, are you going to kill me now or something like that? And he's like, no, I'm too tired. And, uh, you know, you kind of get the sense that um, the character of Snake Plissken in any any other filmmaker could have made that movie. And it would not it would have been panned immediately like, oh, this is just so this is stupid. This is like really goofy. But because John Carpenter kind of pulls it off and he has like the kind of makes Snake into an interesting character, even though you don't know anything about him, you kind of want to see him succeed. Um, you actually kind of take him seriously, despite the fact that he's saying like these really kind of corny one liners, like kind of um, I guess the the antithesis to Snake Plissken is Arnold in most of his movies from that period, like Commando and Predator. Well, I don't know why you call like, the antithesis. Uh, I'd say it's a little bit more um, serious, not not as uh, lighthearted as maybe an Arnold archetype, which is sort of just your, your Chad, no matter where you drop him, he's always going to come out on top uh, with... Well, I, would, I mean, I mean that like Arnold is in most of his films, like, Commando, Predator, uh, for sure, True Lies, a lot of those movies. He's a very lighthearted guy for right. the most part, and there's a lot of like funny one-liners where he's smiling. He basically like looks at the camera <laughs> and smiles during when he's saying some yeah. of the stuff because it's just so... Yeah, there, there's a so, very good... It's so goofy. Um, there's actually yeah. two, and there's probably more at this point, but... Uh, me and my buddies used to laugh like crazy because somebody on YouTube in the early days of YouTube, even before that, there were Arnold soundboards, which I'd highly recommend <laughs> using for prank phone calls. But the yeah. uh, the YouTube guys in the early days, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going like, to compile all the Arnold one-liners. And there's like 
literally like 300 of them that are actually quite memorable and funny. Uh, and it, it goes on for like 30 minutes of just him, like, you know, cutting bad guys in half and making fun of them. Um, so obviously, yeah, that, that was something the writers recognized in him and he was quite good at it. And like, you can, a lot of those one liners, there's a ton of like weird, there's a ton of like very corny one liners in escape from New York. There's, there's, there's at least 10 of them from St. Pliskin. But he says them all with a straight face in like a very quiet tone. And then you're expecting for them to, for there to be some humor, like like kind of like a, like a comedy bit after that or something. And then there isn't one. It's just totally serious. Uh, I'm thinking of the scene in God, is it Predator in the opening scene where they, they raid the drug camp or whatever? Arnold like, <laughs> Stick around. Yeah. <laughs> he throws a knife at the guy. I mean, there's so and, many. There's and the so guy many. like flies back five feet and gets stuck to a bamboo wall. And Arnold looks right at the camera and laughs and says, "Stick, stick around." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's there's one in Commando where he impales the guy with the pipe. Yep. And he rams him into like the, I don't know what that is, like the cooling thing. Oh, like that's the, that's an old building. They they're using a boiler yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. It's for he, heating. And he says he, he looks at the guy and smiles and he says, "Cool off, Bennett." No, he's, no, 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 no. He said, "Let off some steam, Bennett." Let off some. Steam. I, I'm revealing. I've I've seen probably Arnold movies a little bit too much, but. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, so. That's why I think Snake Plissken, the character, Kirk Russell in real life is is a really funny, upbeat dude. But that character, like, well, and if you want an example of yeah. Kirk Russell doing that kind of action hero thing, but he's a funny guy, um, Escape or uh, Big Trouble in Little China, uh, is basically that's that's the movie you want to watch that's also kind of like the antithesis to the snake plissken movies where um instead of it being dead serious it's like really gritty and ugly and it's super realistic and, and just sort of weird uh, uh, big trouble in little china is a ridiculous movie but it is hilarious because Kirk Russell is being funny and he's doing the goofy one-liners and smiling and having a good time. Like uh, only John Carpenter can do one of these cheesy 80s action movies and take it totally seriously. And it's actually kind of fun to watch, like, you know, something that is a little bit more down to earth and not uh, not uh, totally ridiculous. Yeah, uh, the uh, the casting of Russell, and this is all because I just looked into this right after I watch watched the movie. I often will do that. I'll look up, uh, you know, uh, mistakes or uh, sort of behind the scenes information, which I find interesting because uh, I, I try to understand the sort of politics that go on when you're making a film, which today are absolutely insane. But uh, it's always interesting to see how the the studio gives directors notes how the producers put pressure on them to make certain marketing decisions. Uh, and it's, it's a way of, uh, understanding how propaganda frankly is, is generated. Um, but Kurt Russell was 
sort of not the first pick of the studio. They wanted a more traditional action star like Charles Bronson uh, in particular. Uh, but what Carpenter wanted was a guy who didn't have the reputation for action, which Russell did not. He was more of a comedic type actor uh, who probably wanted to break out of that. And so he cast him or he fought to get him cast because he thought he could actually direct him as opposed to getting a established star like Bronson, who would probably uh, object to certain things. Hey, we've got Nick now uh, who could finally join us. Glad he could be here. It was actually his suggestion that we do this topic tonight. So it's good that he's here. Uh, so how are you doing? Well, I, I'm good. I just I thought it would be, uh, you know, something kind of comfy to talk about. That uh, uh, It's one of my favorite movies. So I just thought. You know, people are kind of wound up right now about what's going on in the in the country, and uh, I just I didn't want to talk about anything too serious. But at the same time, it's kind of it's kind of a topical film. I mean, it's got my my two cents on the film. Going a little further is it's got the right kind of mood to it that fits. I think a lot about America. You have. And I think that Kurt Russell's character, you know, Snake Plissken, is in some ways the quintessential American anti-hero or hero. Yeah, and, and he's um, he's somewhat known in Hollywood for having right-wing politics, which I think is an interesting choice. I don't know about Carpenter's politics, but we talked about this, but the film was made at the tail end of the 70s, which was the the absolute nadir of New York city. I mean, it was just a complete mess. Uh, the power went out, like the, the infrastructure was degrading. Uh, the budget was, you know, they, they were bankrupt. Uh, it was, it was a complete cluster cluster F and the, uh, the movie captures that. And I think people thought it was anachronistic, which it wasn't. It was actually uh, sort of telling of the time, but it was not correct in that, New York would stay that way forever, but it did take until, frankly, the '90s when Giuliani started uh, doing broken window policies, and the uh, the money powers basically were like, "We're sick of this. We need to turn this place into a, a real estate um, mecca," and and they did. But it, it took another good 15 years for that to happen. Well, it's set in the in the dystopia yeah. of 1997, I think it is. It's like the tail yeah. end of the nineties. Yeah. All, also, when, yeah. when Terminator Two was supposed to kick off, um, or the, uh, the Judgment Day, as Cameron actually worked on part of uh, this film, uh, which I, I read, uh, he was a he Roger did the Corman mat, he guy. did like the matte paintings, and he like worked on. He's some a of the great artist. He, he's a really good artist. Like he that. drew all the Terminator yeah. drawings to inspire that movie. Uh, so yeah, uh, I believe that. But but yeah, Nick, uh, we, we've yeah, been talking about it for a while, so why don't you take the stage here? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot. Like I said, I, I think that Kurt Russell's, that Snake Plissken is, in many respects, the quintessential hero of a of the right of the of a very of a very on the nose America, right? I mean, one of the lines is like, you know, we're looking for the president, and it's like the president of what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's. It's an extremely, you know, he's, and you don't really know much about him other than he's like famous, right? He's like a well known 
pack soldier or mercenary or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and that actually uh, I thought was a little bit hard to believe, to be honest. I mean, it is set in a time when mass media did dominate how people learned about major people and events, for sure. There was no you know, Facebook, you know, making every local Karen a, a celebrity. But um, the fact that the country has degraded to the point where there are African warlords dominating the island of Manhattan, yet everybody in Manhattan knows this war hero of a country that has imprisoned them, it just struck me as strange. Like I, that part I didn't, I didn't quite buy. But obviously, it's just a plot element. It doesn't matter that much. But uh, that that was sort of one thing that I thought was a little bit, a little bit interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily like there's a lot of it that's just kind of you take it for, for a given. I mean, the setup is, you know, crime. It's like 1988. Like crime just explodes. It goes up. <laughs> crime has gone up by 400. There's no explanation given. Yeah. It's yeah, so and you're not given any like scroll crawl explanation of the exact nature of the Cold War going hot, right? You get allusions to how it was in Leningrad and that kind of thing. Well, you yeah. go, like one guy, uh, Hawk or whatever, says he was a veteran in Siberia or yeah. something like that. Like yeah. there's a vague reference to some kind of invasion of the Soviet Union. Yeah, Leningrad is referenced a couple times. It is it is a very Cold War movie. That much is true, uh, and it it I think like at the end of the day, it serves best as a mood piece. Uh, it's not necessarily it, it's it's up there probably in my top three Carpenter films. Um, but it's it's a, it's true the plot's a little thin, and there's some stuff that doesn't exactly make sense in it. Well, uh, we, but the, the president of the United States being like this ineffectual object and like no one gives a shit about the president. They just like he has some like tape recording that they want. Yeah. And the the end, man, the end, like the movie is better in every way than Escape from L.A. But Escape from L.A. also nails the ending, I will say. But the ending of Escape from New York is just fantastic. The part where he switches the tapes. I, what, what part did you like? Yeah, where he's just walking away, like the like, and you don't know because you don't know with the MacGuffin, right? Like you don't know what the exact consequences of this are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You're just told like this is really important, and it has something to do with like a nuclear holocaust or whatever. And it's like just, a nuclear fusion. No, it was, it was technology for uniting yeah. the world and some gay utopia. Yeah, that's but, the point. It's like yeah. you don't really know. It's something really important, and he just has so few shits left to give that he just he just switches it out and tears it up to fuck with them. It's a very it's a very Nick move. I, I definitely yeah, see why you like this character. It's beautiful. I and he does a similar thing in Escape from L.A. He basically plunges the world into a dark age of technology so i I, I hope we don't do that film because i've heard it's terrible but i am curious what the plot of that was uh it's there's a lot that's really good in that movie i think that there's just some stuff that isn't done it recycles it's kind of when different director no 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 it's carpenter but it's carpenter on his way out so in a certain sense maybe you could say yeah it's a different director right but there's elements that they go back to you know, Carpenter's golden age, like the ending, for example, but there's other stuff in it. So instead of the, the gladiator fight scene, you have like a basketball showdown, which 
is pretty bad, yeah. Yeah. Because apparently, like Snake Snake Plissken is also that, like one of the best uh, three point shooters. It, that in the just world. sounds like Space Jam or some garbage, you know, Disney. Thing yeah, it's, it's really it's terrible. Bad. There's like a lot of weird uh, religious animosity in in Escape from L.A. Like it, it completely abandons everything that was interesting and, and very stylistic about the first it, film and it just but there's 90s there's trash. echoes of it there's there's some echoes of it like the the final line when he lights the cigarette after sending the world into the dark age and he's like welcome to the human race i mean that was probably one of the best deliveries in kurt russell's career is just so fucking good but you know yeah nobody's gonna tell you it's the better movie i mean that's that's it goes without saying it's, it's obviously inferior yeah uh, Escape from LA is one of the quintessential mood pieces, though, and it just shows like you get a lot of the hallmarks of Carpenter, uh, which is one of the big ones is that you know people it kind of has this. I'm curious because this is I know that you hadn't seen it, Adam. Uh, did you were you kind of expecting more of like an action like a Die Hard kind of action movie? No, no, I knew it was like a dy- getting into. I, I knew it was a dystopic uh, portrayal of a a world or a country at least gone really wrong. I didn't know how it actually was uh, plotted out. Uh, I actually assumed that Kurt Russell was a prisoner and he was actually trying to get out uh, in in a way, I guess he is, but uh, I thought he was like trying to just like get out of Manhattan or something, but uh, no, it was more like, uh, and and we mentioned this before he jumped on. um, It's much more like a, Metal Gear Solid, where he's this ex-soldier, and they they basically capture him and, and force him into this to well, yeah, do the I bidding. Mean, of course, in Metal Gear Solid, like in every like you know, people familiar with Metal Gear Solid know that in the, the second Metal Gear Solid, he goes by uh, Snake Plissken. Or just yes, yes, yeah. And the first one was also there. Were, I, we mentioned a little bit about it before too, but. Yeah, the the whole series is very much inspired. Even the the casting of David Hayter, I think is his name, the voice actor, very oh, yeah. much yeah. reminiscent of the voice that Kurt Russell uh, did, which was based on Eastwood, actually. Uh, but that that sort of very um, flat, gravelly style. There are some interesting themes that are kind of like I, I did rewatch. I've seen this movie countless times. And I can tell you some things that I noticed this time that I didn't really pick up on before. Uh, I think the, the overall theme, which makes it really compelling to me, is just none of this shit matters anymore. <laughs> like it, like it's all done. It doesn't matter. And that that's that's like the what is that the post black pill or the black pill? Um, well, that's not what that's not what was new to me right like obviously that's the theme of the movie but Uh what was interesting you mentioned you got me thinking about this when you mentioned clint eastwood because you uh first of all who sends him into this oh it's 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 the the bad yeah well he's not always he's he's only he's the bad and the good bad and the ugly he's a right a different he's a more neutral character in uh, a few dollars more i think it was yeah, I think so. He think he's uh, yes. He's yes. in two of them. I don't remember if it was few dollars or uh, fistful. But yeah. point is, it, that's by no means is that the only western that Lee Van Cleef was in, though, right? So right. Lee Van Cleef was an old school western actor. He also would play, you know, some anti heroes as well. But what I noticed was his office is adorned with all this old Americana, all these old like American. Uh, you know, frontier weapons, firearms, and hmm. all insignia of the country that no longer exists. 
and he's this he that's kind of the figure that he's he's representing and i think that was a that was an an interesting touch that i did not pick up on before was that the one sending him into this as like some final true believer in in the american idea mm. when the, the the president himself is like I think he almost seems to have like an accent or something too. It's like well, yeah, Hans was saying he's like, he's British, he's like British, yeah. which I didn't yeah. pick up on. But uh, I, just to respond to uh, Nick's comment about uh, Lee Van Cleef's character Hauk, uh, I think uh, being a true believer, I didn't I didn't read it that way. I, I viewed him as a mercenary of a different type, uh, at least a careerist. I, I just saw him as a guy. He, he just had a rank, and he was like just trying to protect it. It didn't seem like he really cared about the president or the country. It was just like, you know, this is my job and I'm going to do this and you're going to do it uh, the way I want you to, which is very much how he was in those uh, Western movies, I thought. Well, he definitely doesn't care about the president and there is no country left to care about, but he cares about some faded idea that, I mean, one of the first things he says to Snake Plissken is that he, he thinks he should be, I don't remember the exact line, but he thinks basically he should just be executed on the spot. And that's because Snake Plissken was a decorated war hero that, you know, went to being a criminal. That's what pissed him off so much was mm. that he, the implication was okay. that he went from, you know, being a war hero or being, you know, one of the boys to, you know, fuck the system, basically. Well, yeah, it, it's, I, I can go with that, but I can also see it in a different way where he's, just part of like this corrupt system that he doesn't want anybody challenging. I mean, you could view it cynically or positively. Uh, it, I mean, honestly, I had the thing playing, you know, while I was doing other things. So I'll, I'll let you be the expert on this, but uh, that's a shame, man. It's one of those movies. You really got to like saturate yourself. In oh, well, that's, that, that's what the movie is. You know, I think I got but, the idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You can get it. I mean, uh, but I think that that's the general the general theme is just like everyone's kind of playing out these roles in this hollowed out shell of a country. You know, you have like they just turn over Manhattan into an open air prison. I mean, it's not supposed to be like, obviously, that doesn't make sense. But there's something more to it. I mean, obviously, well, it doesn't it it doesn't and it does. I mean, look, given how COVID and Chaz and all this nonsense have popped up. It doesn't. It doesn't. But it's. I, that's that's I think the charm of the movie. The other the other point I want to add is that it's you see a lot of the John Carpenter's. He really is at the end of the day more of a a horror filmmaker than he is anything else. And the most some of the best scenes in the film are where you're seeing him using this horror techniques where the kind of the masses or the, you know the feral masses are some kind of almost mystical entity. He does the same thing in uh, Assault on Precinct 13 where the criminals are kind of this like mystical force of evil and not exactly human. You know, when he's being like chased in the, in the streets by these things. Well, honestly, the, one of the themes that kind of resonates throughout all of Carpenter's films, regardless of they're more of a sci-fi or action film, like, uh, you know, there's assault on precinct 13, there's escape from New York and there's things like there's movies like the thing or, uh, the fog, and the most resonant part of all of them, I would say, A, is a sense of paranoia. And B, there's a constant sense of almost claustrophobia. Even in Halloween and Escape from New York, um, 
which in theory take place in much more open environments, right? In Halloween, it's a town and Escape from New York, it's a city. But it, regardless, it feels claustrophobic and you feel very paranoid all the time. And there's a there's a sense, I think definitely in Halloween with like the, the mysterious serial killer um, phenomena going on in the 70s, kind of influencing that, and, um, that all of these weird things that you have to go through as just an average ordinary person are far beyond your understanding. And they're going to make you feel paranoid all the time. And they're always going to be kind of lurking around the corner. And life is just about survival. And uh, you kind of, I mean, you do get that sense at the end of Escape from L.A. where he says, you know, welcome to the human race. Like, and basically the, the sense you get in all of Carpenter's films is um, all that life really amounts to is just trying to survive a minute longer. And that kind of explains that, why I think he's like an atheist or something. He's like a diehard atheist in real life. Th th that's a really good point. Uh, actually you hit it. It's funny because I have over the past month or so rewatched most of Carpenter's work. Uh, there's a few I haven't rewatched. Like they live. I didn't rewatch escape from LA and I didn't rewatch uh, Prince of Darkness, but I watched everything from like vampires, the thing, you know, so on and so forth. But, Two, two points. Firstly, uh, Halloween itself, it, it that's the genius of that film, is that he manages to make create a sense of like no escape in a situation where you have like this this festive night where everybody's out and about and you can't you're in the suburbs, but you, there's nowhere you can run that is safe. And that that's what really makes that movie. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie. The other thing is Kurt Russell himself. So. To, to the idea that there's like big things going on that is like beyond people. Uh, that's very much to the point. And the thing with Kurt Russell in all these Carpenter films that he's in, he always plays this character who doesn't give a shit about understanding what's going on. He doesn't care. Like a big trouble in little China doesn't care. Like there's ancient mystical Chinese, you know, metaphysical battle or whatever taking place. That's, aeons old or something and he just doesn't give a shit he, he so much does he not give a shit that by the time by the end of the movie when the girl is down to bang he just doesn't even care and bounces with his truck it's the same like escape from new york like you have potential nuclear holocaust on the horizon kurt russell doesn't give a shit the thing like mystical jew horror from beyond the colors of time doesn't give a shit just wants to survive doesn't care about understanding it and why should he I mean, all the and Kurt Russell and John Carpenter was just—it was the perfect match. They they were made for each other. What what was the first film he was cast in with Carpenter? Uh, I think The Thing actually. Yeah. Or Big Trouble might have came first. Okay. I I'm I'm not sure. It it would have been, it would have been one of those two. Uh, so, I probably Big Trouble because The Thing was later eighties. The Thing yeah, was so like eighty eight. I, I, I was saying before this is based on just my cursory reading of the movie but apparently uh, the studio wanted a, a tougher more traditional like bronson like uh actor for this movie and carpenter fought for russell they wanted uh, a mongolian yeah right uh who, who is uh actually there's some old movies where bronson is like in a western and uh i i gotta give the guy props he he is uh he's jacked i mean the guy is is definitely a formidable looking guy 
So I think he earned the action star yeah, role. Yeah, no, nothing against Bronson and nothing against Mongolians for that matter. For real, uh, man. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but Kurt Russell is definitely a better choice for Carpenter. I mean, wait, what, just, what is this Mongolian reference? I don't get. This. He's got some Bronson. kind of admixture in him. Yeah, yeah, he's some, he's some like step person. I, I think he's know. like what? Russian. He's more no like way. Russian, but maybe yeah. like Charles that Bronson, part yeah. of Russia. Yeah, he's like, he's like part, part some weird. Uh, step oh he's uh, he's, yeah. he's tatar oh that's, that sounds right okay. yeah okay yeah interesting there you go. i didn't know that wow you yeah something every day yeah that's why that's why you tune into this high quality content folks right uh you know we're here for you i'm <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> uh but i i think that it's I mean, Carousel was great, man. I mean, this was him in his prime and these movies of the Carpenter. I don't know. Carp- the thing about Carpenter that is strange, and it's kind of this mystery, is like what happened. I don't really, I'm not sure anyone exactly knows because he's just, it just started to nosedive. Uh, Ghosts of Mars was like you just throwing it in the incinerator. And the thing about Ghosts of Mars is actually the script that movie is pretty interesting. You basically have this like Mars has been colonized and you have some kind of weird gynocracy with like lesbian black exploitation uh, commissars or whatever. And like men are like enslaved to go do like dirty work for them or something. Sounds about right. And then they have, they discover this ancient, you know, civilization that's buried beneath the red planet, you know, and it, it's, kind of a ghost story, kind of a cool sci-fi story. There's a lot of really good material in the script. And you have Jason Statham could have been cast as the lead, but instead it was Ice Cube. He's in the film, but well, he's a second fiddle to Ice Cube. So, I, okay, I'm going to say that the last good movie that John Carpenter made was They Live. Nah, nah, Vampires is good. Uh, Mouth oh, of Madness not. is good. Yeah, Vampires is good. It's it's schlock, sure, but it's like grade A schlock. That movie that movie has a lot of charm to it. It's like, not okay in in the I guess Mouth of Madness is it's okay, but the last like truly good, really Carpenter movie that he made that that stands out is They Live. Like if you had to and if you had to ask most people, what's the John Carpenter movie you remember? Like you know generally what are his better movies? I think he, generally people would think that he stopped being consistently good after he made They Live. Like, I don't know what he happened stopped, to him. He, he stopped being on the way up. Like, yeah. it was, yeah, it was no longer in ascendancy. Uh, I, I think that I, I, I will defend vampires, and I think that uh, Mouth of Madness is a is a pretty pretty dope movie. It's a good take on Lovecraft, uh, though not a direct Lovecraft adaptation, but it's it's a good movie. Um, but I, I think that you're right. I mean, as far as common wisdom goes, uh, they, was was the end of it, which, you know, takes place in or it was a made 1988 i think so the thing i mixed those up earlier i, I just pulled up this filmography uh yeah the thing was 82 and they live was 88 yeah that makes sense um big trouble is like has always been and probably always will be my favorite i think the thing is most accomplished film they live is pretty funny though i mean they live is the one that's you know so on the nose that it it hurts right it's it's just like cartoonish and he's he's spent all these years like trying to deny that it was about the jews well yeah <laughs> i mean i mean so here's the thing it's about the republicans yeah well, let's yeah like there's definitely an element to the day live i think adam was asking about his politics where like 
Okay. There's a part of it that is really easy to get on board with, which is that most of the people you see day to day and most of the messaging you get day to day is subliminal or these are people who are like going to rat you out or tell on you for thinking different. Like, you know, he's starting to see something different. Like they talk into their wrist and, uh, okay. So on that level, it's great because definitely a lot of us feel like that. We'll get ratted out by any of these random people if they knew what we were like or what we saw. And there's an insane amount of subliminal messaging in general media. However, his analysis of what that subliminal messaging is intended to do is was very, I mean, was kind of off base in the late 80s when he made the movie. 35, 32 years later, <laughs> it is way off base. I mean, I, you know, I yearn for the days where the subliminal messaging in advertising was like marry and reproduce. I mean, the subliminal messaging now is uh, oh, cut your genitals off, yeah, and ingest you chemicals into your body. I mean, it's completely diametrically different. So, well, I could okay, never, but you I could can't never, like, you can't really understand. blame the guy for getting. I don't, the, I don't blame uh, the guy. Geopolitics thirty years whole, in the future wrong, but yeah, the, the, and the whole thing is like it's a countercultural critique at the end of the Reagan era. He's trying to like show audiences show people that a lot of the Reagan era was built on a lot of this phony marketing and there's a lot of um, sort of false wealth and no one wants to question any of it and you should kind of just go along to get along and I get that because those same mechanisms have been hijacked for a totally different agenda um, so They Live holds up as a great film in my mind because it actually is a tongue-in-cheek way of exposing kind of how the world really is. You put on the glasses and you see what the world really is. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the political outlook of it just doesn't hold up at all. There's good, there's good stuff, though. Like, I mean, the best scene in the movie is when he has to force the guy to put on the glasses in the, scene, the fight scene in the alleyway. Right. With yeah. Roddy Piper, yeah. He has to and then... Him. Yeah, I forcibly red pill him, right? Like, so you fucking bite the curb. Yeah, it's uh, it's good, man. I that that scene is great. Uh, it's a hilarious fight scene. And then the other thing that's that really I haven't rewatched They Live recently at all. But the one thing that I, I'm always going to remember is how it shows that you know you have these reptilian you know Jew figures that you know you can see with the glasses, but then. Then you have like the collaborators, right? Who all have contacts or whatever, and so they can see the the Jews, and they they know that the Jews are there and still collaborate with them. Basically, I think that that's kind of the part of it that's most on the nose, as opposed to the the specific contents of the marketing. It's that dynamic of there's this this foreign element amongst us, and he's like all you know shocked that yeah nobody else has noticed this and then he finds out wait no the people other people who are in positions of power are well aware of this and they're collaborating with it no, it's an important lesson it's not enough to be right it's it's maybe necessary or not depending on your goals but what is sufficient is to have power if your goal is power being right does not get you power uh and the uh the social dynamic is very true too the 
aspect of those that will compromise and collaborate in order for them to obtain a degree of power is always constant in human nature and it's something you can't underestimate and it's arguably something you need to harness if you're going to go anywhere but what i was getting at earlier i i don't really think anybody knows the reason for john carpenter's downfall he hasn't made a movie in like two decades there's a movie that came out in the mid 2000s that has his name attached to it and i don't think he even made that movie I, i'm not it's called the ward uh, and i've never seen it i have a friend that saw it and told i mean th- this is this it. is lazy analysis on my part but couldn't you just attribute it to age i mean most people's he was still is... a young man in the 2000s you know uh, it depends i mean artistic creativity a lot of people attribute it to like you know late 20s early 30s and that's about dude, it dude not in not in not with directing you know in direct true and there are a young, lot of exceptions you're a young man but, if, if you're making a movie but like, i do think the quality in your 40s is better that's a big deal these maybe days. the 40s but if you look at the great directors i do think their best films were in their earlier years i, I don't, I don't know Cervantes. Cervantes wrote don quixote when he was well past 50 okay okay you can like, find I, exceptions I, I, in anything but would you disagree with the general statement that typically the directors of the, the great directors they're typically their best work is in their younger half of their of their career well there's a difference between career and age right like yeah maybe they're when they're first getting able to make movies and stuff they might have there's more of that well that creative reservoir is untapped and then right. when you get on irrespective of age itself uh when you get on maybe you know th- that was all the kind of the stuff that you had wanted to do and you don't have anything left yeah that's fair yeah i yeah. can i could point you to cases of that for sure um you know it's and then you got you got other phenomenon like the sophomore slump right where it's yeah it's also people who are successful typically don't want to take as many chances uh their brain frankly just slows down uh and then you're also just kind of complacent it's like well i've already achieved i mean i might as well just enjoy i think there's a lot of things going against uh older directors now there's some things that go for them too they can get they can get access they can get deals but i think there's also a typecasting that happens with them from the studios where if you're Martin Scorsese, well, you're not making a gangster movie. Like, well, you need to do a gangster movie kind of thing. And so uh, there's totally, a lot of things. Totally, yeah. You know, that's the thing for sure. Um, I mean, John Carpenter was one of those unique directors who he would attach his name to the title of the film in a way that others, uh, right? John Carpenter's fill in the blank. Yeah. yeah, Spike Lee uh, did this also. Right. Uh, and then you have stuff like Clive Barker, but he was not directing the films. It's just his is, story. It, right? Is that Clive the guy Barker. who did Hellraiser? I was trying to think of Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. He's Hellraiser. Uh, John Carpenter. Yeah, it would be John Carpenter's The Thing. John Carpenter's They Live. Yeah. John Carpenter's Vampires. Exactly. So yes. can we talk about The Thing while we're on that subject? Uh, I was... I, I talked about this on my friend's podcast, uh, Manifest Destiny, but um, I'm happy to do it again. Uh, well, can I just say, I was curious, as I'm always curious with uh, a lot of these films that we regard highly now, what they were, how they were received when they came out. 
the thing flopped. They totally flopped, and everyone hated it. And it was regarded as a. I mean, uh, I, I guess there were like a couple like very prominent um, uh, movie critics who regarded it as like the moron movie of the year or something like that. Like, <laughs> if, yeah, people in, really in didn't get it. In hindsight, I mean, people look at that movie now and they say, oh, that's a, I mean, that's a classic movie. Like, everyone should look at that for how you should make a horror film. But at the time, for whatever reason, it was regarded as, uh, like, way over the top and stupid, whereas now I think most people regard it as sort of a, like a masterpiece, effectively. Took, you took a lot of chances in that movie. Uh, just to name one, there are no women in the film, uh, which is a difficult thing to get away with these days. I mean, when you're trying to pitch it, you know, you, you got to have a woman, right? I mean, Which, alien, to, to be yeah, fair, it, it it is a little bit more defensible, given although you could say that about Alien too, but um, it's a little more defensible given that they're in Antarctica. I mean, it's a very inhospitable place. There's not a lot of uh, you know book clubs and social events that girls yeah, enjoy Adam, attending. By that reasoning, there shouldn't be any Negroes in you know 16th century England. Yet, alas, here we are. Yeah, yeah. Different time. I guess Hollywood wasn't as overtly, um, I don't know, progressive, I guess. But I enjoyed enjoyed that movie. It was was good. I I think one thing I have to say about Carpenter is I forget that I'm watching a... You could sort of unfairly typecast him as a horror director, perhaps, but I would generally assign him that that status. And the movies, they live... uh, the thing is horror, but um, Escape from New York is more sci-fi. But the thing, it, it's it's also sci-fi in a way, in the sense that look, we're on this continent that really, like, what a thousand people have been to. We don't know that much about it. Um, they're still pulling out rocks that you know have like extraterrestrial nature in the bacteria in them. So there's a lot of like possibilities and it didn't strike me as um supernatural necessarily it was just more well, you know like so it's believable like, in, it, in a sort of weird way well that's i so that's the thing about escape from new york it's it's basically it is a horror movie but it's a horror movie that you then insert this american hollywood archetype of like the lone gunman you know it's you, you take these kind of familiar, like it's the Western kind of trope, Hollywood Western trope, and you put them into this kind of pseudo horror movie, you know, because that, that is what it is. It's it's I mean, there are scenes in the movie that are very much classic John Carpenter escape the bad monster, you know, everything the world is trying to kill you type situation. You know, the the one where he, like the, and the woman gets like pulled from beneath. Uh, he's having that conversation. He throws the cigarette at the woman, and she's like coming on to him, and then she just gets pulled through the floorboards. <laughs> he's like mobbing. It's almost like a, almost like a zombie movie. Yeah. Why? Well, th- this this is the part of the movie that uh, I sort of uh, withhold disbelief because, I, again, this probably is a little bit too autist hour. But how does this 
island actually function like there's literally okay first of all like the people living in the floor like what, what do they just wait there for people to come by and eat i mean it makes no sense there, there wouldn't be enough footfall to yeah, sustain they're, they're probably this. cannibals or whatever okay well, but yeah, I mean, and, and then like the guy like the brain like he has literally an oil derrick in his room harry dean stanton Okay, and and I'm yeah. like, oh, you're mine. Oh, first of all, yeah, you're, you're drilling for the, oil so on a bedrock uh, island that they've never found oil on, and you're doing it in your room. It, it's just, it's obviously I like, figured, just, you're I not knew, supposed to analyze it, but I knew it, it just that you would notice that, it, and it just that it would piss me. you off. Yes. I, I knew that. Like when I was rewatching, I'm like, oh, Adam's gonna mention this. I knew it. You know me well. Do, do not disappoint. Do not disappoint. Yeah, it's the. Uh, it's it's a mood piece, but it's it's this yeah it's this kind of horror film meets the trappings of an action movie. It's it's a very special movie. I don't think anyone has ever really replicated it. it's. Uh, I guess because you can't Carpenter is in some respects beyond imitation, but some of it's coming back a little bit. I've seen some Carp- Carpenter imitators, but it doesn't. It it's still a a pale a pale shadow of of the master. Carpenter had a way of, he knew how to make, the problem with low-budget filmmaking, when you're constrained by your ability to show things, right, you're limited, uh, it is really hard to keep people in it, you know, to suspend disbelief and to get with the mood and follow it. And Carpenter was really good at that. And he knew when to kind of use comedy to balance out the stuff that is a little bit dicey i mean you look at you see this in his first film dark star where the the uh, space alien is like an inflatable beach volleyball right <laughs> so it's like it's comedy it's it's a kind of a joke but at the same time that movie is actually very serious i mean the the, the ideas behind it are very serious and bleak uh, you see a similar thing and uh, big trouble little china but he does this so well and i did you guys already before i popped in did you already talk about the twin towers uh, a little bit but not not the meaning or much of the significance of them just the fact that he landed there yeah well it is interesting that that 747 uh doesn't seem to you know cause the building it crashes into to collapse oh that's not a that is not a 747 747 is i don't know what hundred times bigger but uh yeah but it was a scale model like i didn't it wasn't sure what it was supposed to be oh it's a glider i mean it's a glider no, I'm talking about Air Force One. Oh, Air Force no, but he, he didn't. I yeah. thought they didn't. Uh, he, I don't think the plane crashed into the World Trade Center. It was just a, a No, it didn't. Building. It didn't. It crashed into a building. Yeah. I mean, fuck, it probably crashed into Building 7. Who knows? It was right next to, like, the World Trade Center is in the shot okay. as the plane hits a building, okay. which is, you know, it's a little spooky. It is. It, it, you can't not be mentioned. I was wondering that, too, but it's... Um... Yeah, I mean that that I don't think that's connected to the actual 9/11 thing. Uh, no, I just, don't I don't think buildings. that. I just think yeah. it's I no, I don't I don't think it's connected in necessarily any way. It's just it is really this going back and watching it now and so much of the world has changed and we're living in our own dystopia. It is it is it's always surreal to see the the building. It um, is. I remember I yeah, it, it's always surreal. There's a pretty cool movie that's about the guy who did like the tightrope walk between the buildings. Oh, that, Man on that Wire. Was, that, that's that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. You get kind of that that movie really really sends it home, but you get that similar vibe in some respects 
because it's the defining first for so long it was the defining characteristic of the new york city skyline yeah i could go on about the meaning of those buildings i mean it was they were finished in the 70s and it was not that long before they shot the film that they were kind of still new and what is i think important about noticing that is again the 70s were a very difficult and just rotten time for the the city of new york and the buildings were built uh and by the way i i uh with sort of a consultation with uh, some of the co-hosts here tonight uh, chose the World Trade Centers as the cover of the book that I wrote uh, a year ago, uh, Exit Strategy. And I did that for a reason because it was it was put in a part of the city uh, downtown where we talked about with uh, Dark Enlightenment about the, uh, uh, the expressway they were trying to build there. And Jane Jacobs successfully defeated that. Uh, but these buildings were built as sort of a way to kind of modernize and uh, push the city forward in, in some vain attempt to improve the, the quality of life there. And it kind of failed. It, it was seen as sort of these, these totems of, of modernity that just didn't fit. And they were really just gigantic uh, eyesores in many people's views. Uh, and they sort of got eventually rented out, uh, but they were just so big that they, they had issues with that. Uh, and I think it was a great juxtaposition where you have a, a just honestly just a failing uh, metropolis, and you have all this money dumped into this one silver bullet that just didn't work. And the fact that it's used in this uh, this film and on the cover of the the, uh, the film, I think, uh, is is very apropos to show the, the irony of those buildings as being this like this super technological society, which is represented by the uh, sort of Lee Van Cleef character guys, uh, and then you have the island, which is completely messed up, and it, they're sort of alien alien constructs and i think it's fitting that kurt russell lands on this sort of transition point between the outside world and manhattan because they're they're really not part of manhattan they're kind of these outsider things so in a sense you could say it's i I hadn't really thought about that because basically you could say that it's in the context of the film it's almost like they were the last buildings ever made in new york city yeah yeah Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could do a whole show. So about what do you, what the, do you the, think, the Adam? Then, Go ahead. What do you think those buildings symbolized to Carpenter at the at the at the time? I know you're not a necessarily a huge Carpenter fan, but since you know about the buildings and the era, no, no, I'm I'm a fan of Carpenter. I think he's a very uh, very skilled director. I, th- I think his his films have a lot of poignance as well. Have, uh, I just have not seen just all the films. To miss this one. Uh, that yeah. I, I mean, I didn't even know he had directed it. I, I just I've heard of the movie, I, uh, but I, I just misunderstood what it was about, really, um, and it just didn't pop up anywhere. But uh, to him, what what do they represent? I mean, probably what I was sort of saying. I, I think he would probably be more on the the side of Jane Jacobs and probably find them appalling, uh, alien inv- invasive uh, kind of things of modernity that were disrupting the. The, the community of the downtown, I would imagine he uh, he would have feelings like that. I, I don't know his politics well enough to really project 
what he would have to say about it. But just based on the film and their usage, um, I think they're they're kind of just these these very um, very odd placements, as you say, in a city that's turned to barbarism, and they they're just sort of sitting there as reminders that there used to be something before this. Well, did you like the film? Yeah, no, it was good. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. I'm sure most people have seen it. I I just assume people have seen it because it's just one of those movies, you know. But I guess if you haven't, it's a shame. You would be surprised how many people have seen that film or haven't really seen, like, any of the films from the 80s. I think, you know, some of our younger listeners probably haven't seen any of them. So, uh uh, yeah, I think we would recommend definitely at least watch Escape from New York and The Thing if you're going to watch any of those any of the movies we talked about tonight. Yeah, and watch watch my favorite, which is Big Trouble Little China. I think that The Thing is his most accomplished film, but my favorite is Big Trouble. Just I, I love that movie to death. Let's see. I, I wish I had. My, it's funny because I, I had to hop on. I don't actually have had some notes, and I don't have them with me. Uh, <laughs> but my main observation was at least for having seen this for many, many years, I've watched it maybe once every two years or so for quite some time. Uh, it was that, that takeaway. I paid a little bit more attention to the Lee Van Cleef character. I thought that was, that was kind of interesting dynamic where they, if you, if you watch it, pay attention to his office. It's, it really kind of stands out when, you know, the rest of everything else is like this military prison, you know, I mean, he is effectively the warden, right? Is is he in charge of Manhattan? I thought he was just kind of the ops guy for getting the president back. I, I didn't quite catch what his role was officially. Uh, he's there's another guy who's more the political side of it, but yeah, it's his prison more or less. Yeah, he's the big guy. He's the yeah, big guy. Oh man, it's you know some of the scenes just and you know that. Uh, Wait, do we want to talk about scenes, Isaac Hayes at all? I thought that was I thought very yeah, reminiscent of Chaz. Yeah, we can talk about about yeah about the. Are you talking about Duke of New York? Yes. A number one. You're right. Yeah, so we can talk about that. I wanted to also add that in addition to, you know, the painted backdrops, uh, I believe there's a few miniatures used too. Well, there's definitely. I mean, obviously the glider uh, is used as a miniature, but. A lot of the shots in Manhattan, nothing was altered. They were just, they got the ability to shoot in places and they just shot in places. That is to say that Manhattan, parts of Manhattan, and if you frame it the right way, already look like a dystopian prison hellscape from the, the, the dark future of 1998 or whatever. I mean, they did. I mean, if you watch any 70s movie, it, it looks like a a really terrible place. It's just run down. There's garbage all over the place. Uh, graffiti. Uh, people are sketch as hell looking. Uh, it, it really, what was that movie? Uh, Warriors or something in the subway. They're, they're kind of like taking things over during the night. Um, Warriors come out and play. Yeah. Death wish was filmed in New York. I mean, it was all the, the seventies crime grittiness that, yeah. I think uh, comes speaking, through. Speaking of Bronson, yeah, yeah, and it's fu- it's funny that that, to my mind, I guess I could comment on this: that when I'm like, "Hey, what's a comfy movie to watch?" You know, to not think about 
uh, you know, to get people's minds away for a little bit from from politics, contemporary politics. I'm like, okay, let's watch my favorite comfy dystopian hellscape movie. <laughs> <laughs> See, it doesn't have to be because it is. I have I have a fondness for yeah. it in a way where it's like I would. It's just it's like a it's a it's a nicer future, you know, than the one we're living in. Yeah, it's simpler times. When you it know is, the it's, enemy it's is quaint. Yeah. Is right there. Yeah, so what did you think see. of Isaac Hayes? What did I think? I just I just couldn't stop thinking about what hap- is happening in Seattle. I mean, it and the fact that they cast him, I guess in 1980 81, 80, you know, slash was interesting because and I mentioned this before he jumped on the woman who hijacks the plane, uh, I guess in the, uh, I was the dreaming cockpit. about, uh, the imperialist, the racism and all the, I mean, this is yeah, like, yeah. just like from central casting schlock from the seventies where this actually happened where you had the, uh, well, she's leather like a, underground Patty, uh, and, a Patty Hearst figure. Yes, exactly. Just like the kind of, uh, upper middle class white chick. She even looks like Patty Hearst with the, the sort of brothers in the black Panthers, uh, and it, it just, just typical seventies uh, white girl crap that is happening well, right now, and it, it just it sort my, of brought it home for me. My pro tip when watching Carpenter films, you know, ignore whatever you've heard about his politics or whatever. Just ignore that. And when you're watching a film and you think he might he might be getting at something, and you're like, nah, I can't be getting at that. Give him the benefit of the doubt that he is, and then it starts to come together more. It, it really does. You know, there's there's little details like that. He didn't have to choose. He didn't have to choose an African to be the 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 warlord of, of Manhattan, but he did. Why did he? You know. I mean, not only that, he's like, look at his Cadillac. He's got chandelier ornaments I know. on the Cadillac. It's so on point. I mean, this is exactly how uh the these guys peacock. I mean, that you see it. Like they, they love their shoes, their Jordans. Chappelle, you know, did a, did a huge skit about having a having an entire um, Asian sweatshop in his basement, making him uh, making him sneakers. Uh, there's just Which, something about the the African male that is is a peacock, and it, it's just it's it's quite uh, accurate. Well, this is what brings me to my. I I do have some criticisms of the movie. Uh, it it is a because it's a little thin on plot, which sometimes works to its strength because that's kind of the. The idea of the movie is that no one really gives a shit. There's a few people who care and they're willing to, you know, kill whoever they need to kill to get what they want. And these are like the last people who give a shit world over or whatever. Right. No, no, not very few people care about anything anymore because there's nothing left to care about. So what I will say is it doesn't really make sense narratively that the Duke would want to leave Manhattan. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I mean, it, it can sort of serve as the causes belly for his whole organization. Like, you need to support me uh, because I'm I'm defending you against the outside yeah. forces. Yeah. But once he escapes, you're you're absolutely correct. Like, he loses his relevance. You're no longer a number one. That's and right. that's kind of the that's the symbolic point of the the fat, ineffectual president machine gunning him to death. He's like laughing about it, like a number one. Well. Now on this wall, like I, I, I am the power here. Even though he himself is nothing but a puppet. I mean, they were prepared to throw him to the dogs too. But it, it's a relative thing, right? It's the kicking shit downward. 
quite literally. 